Hello, and welcome to Andraste's Gadfly, the podcast where two overworked nerdy philosophers apply philosophical theory to the Dragon Age games. We're going to try and do all three that are out right now. My name is Jill Fellows, and joining me today, I'm Kira Thompson. And I just want to say up front, if you are looking for a completionist walkthrough of any of these games, or detailed discussions of myths and lore, complete with tinfoil theories regarding your favorite egg, you have definitely come to absolutely the wrong place. (laughs) We're not going to do any theories here. We're not going to do any walkthroughs. I am not a completionist. I actually played Inquisition one time, intentionally trying to avoid closing any rifts because (gasps) I didn't like doing it. (laughs) No. I think Kira is a bit of a completionist though, right, Kira? I am totally and unfortunately a completionist, Uh, but it's more of a compulsive desire not to miss anything and hoard my completed quest list like a dragon than any deep engagement with the lore. So what we are going to do is geek out on philosophical theory and Dragon Age. We are both philosophers, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to apply philosophical theory to some of the issues that arise in Dragon Age. So welcome to episode one. We're going to just get our feet wet by examining uh, what we're going to call some mini moral dilemmas. What we've done is looked at some elements of the three games that don't seem to make a huge difference to the plot of the games. At least we don't think so yet. I guess it could all change with Dragon Age 4. But they do have moral components. So this week we're going to be applying moral theories. So we're going to look at three mini moral dilemmas over the course of all three games. First, we're going to look at Awakenings. So this is um, the expansion to Dragon Age Origins. And we're going to specifically look at whether we should save the city or save the vigil. Then we're going to look at Dragon Age 2 and the question of when you confront Bartrand with Varric, should you kill Bartrand or not? The last mini moral dilemma comes from Dragon Age Inquisition, and we're going to ask whether when you do Bull's loyalty quest, should we sacrifice the Chargers or should we sacrifice the Dreadnought? So that's our three topics for today, spanning the three games, just these mini moral dilemmas. We're going to start our first segment, which I'm calling First Run and Headcanon. So what I want to ask Kira is in your first run, When you played Dragon Age Awakenings, did you save the city or did you save the vigil? I saved the city. You saved the city. Why? Oh, I totally saved the city. Because I was there. And it seemed that going back to the vigil to try to save people seemed like a bad strategic idea, first of all. Sort of like, why would I go back there when I've... I've, And part of the setup is you leave companions back there to defend it. Right. And so... I'm in the city and I I admit, I always pick the choices that I think I personally would make. I get really bound up with the character. So you're kind of role-playing yourself. I kind of am. (laughs) And I apparently tend to take on this very just noble persona and want to save everybody. And I just never could accept the burn the city option because that's really how they give you the options you can save the city or burn it and i'm just like i'm not gonna burn a city with people in it so it always seemed like there was no choice right so yeah i i saved the city yeah 
And I always do the quests that shore up vigils keep so that I know that it's defensible and I've done everything in my power to because I'm a completionist. <laughs> so I know that it's got all the upgrades because I spent all that time doing that. So it it always within the character of the game and within where I am, it always seemed like a a strategic choice to stay. But also, A, there's no way I'm going to sacrifice civilians and all the people in the city. After I've also, because I'm a completionist, spent so much time running around the city trying to do everything for people. Right. So you've like built relationships with these people. Yes. I think if I remember correctly, you're also technically the Arl of Amaranthine. And that's the name of the city, right? Amaranthine. Yeah. I mean, you're you're the person who's in charge of this whole sort of fiefdom. Right. Right. So it feels like I've got a certain obligation to the people. Yeah. So I've seen arguments that as a warden, because you're also playing as a warden, either as mm-hmm. the the hero of Ferelden, or if the hero of Ferelden died in Origins, then some other new warden character, that because you're a warden, you should do anything necessary to stop the Darkspawn threat. And there are stories that wardens have done extreme things like burn cities to the ground in the past but you're also the arl in this case and as you said if you're a completionist you have a fairly good reason to think that the vigil is going to stand without your assistance so to speak whereas you don't necessarily have that confidence in the city in fact you're actively going to try and destroy the city if you go back to the vigil Yeah, and I think also just another point that played into it is I was playing as an elf. Right. And I think willingness to sacrifice people was something that I didn't feel was in character with the elf that I was playing. Actually, on either ones, because the first time I was a city elf and the second time I was a Dalish elf. And for some reason in my head, neither of those characters would be like, yeah, we're going to burn a city. (laughs) Fair enough. So this is a great way to start episode one, but I have to admit that I did not finish Awakenings. (laughs) Just, I am not a completionist. I did not finish Awakenings. There's no particular reason other than life got busy. So, hey, if anyone's listening, let us know whether I should finish Awakenings. I'm sure you're all going to say I should. Okay, so in this case... Kira, your first run and your headcanon are kind of the same. You always save the city. I think I'll always save the city. I think even if I knew that the vigil would fall, part of me would be like, yeah, the people know there that they're sacrificable. (laughs) They know what they've signed up for. They're wardens. They know what they've signed up for. In the consequence of the game, as far as I can tell, if you let the vigil fall, it seems like it only takes about five years in the lore for it to be rebuilt again anyway. Provided that you've shored everything up and you've you've made certain choices but there really is no far-reaching game consequences except for the epilogue that you get yeah and i found in doing some research through some fandoms and wikis that there's also a few references in dragon age 2 right if you let the city fall there's some references to like the ruthlessness of wardens Yes. And if you let the fort fall, there are some details that change because some people are dead and so they don't appear in Dragon Age 2. It's not not very much in terms of in-game consequence. Okay, so since we're talking about Dragon Age 2, let's talk about Dragon Age 2. (laughs) Uh, So our second mini moral dilemma, I want to know what the headcanon and the first run through was. 
is the reckoning with Bartrand. So when you go to Bartrand's mansion to confront him because Bartrand left you stranded in the tag and took off with the bounty and you had to fight your way out. And so Vart comes to you later in the game and says, hey, I've located my brother, like, let's go deal with this. And you're like, yes, this is payback. So, okay, what what do you normally do, Kira? So I've only played it once fully. This is where I'm going to shine because I've played this game so many times. In the first playthrough, I really didn't care about this quest very much. And I have a hard time remembering exactly what I did. (laughs) And my best guess is that I know I had Anders in my party. And so I know that he healed momentarily Bertrand. Yeah. And based on that, I strongly suggest... I let him live because I was always trying to minimize the amount of killing I was responsible for. And I think that's probably what I did. Like the first playthrough, I always tried to avoid killing people when I could. Uh, I would always choose the negotiate option or the let them live even if they did terrible things. So that was my mentality there. So I'm pretty sure that I I spared him. Okay. This time around, I know in advance, I don't think I'm going to because I'm channeling my inner Dr. Kevorkian of Ferelden and I'm basically (laughs) killing anyone I think might be suffering. And not just that, I'm offering to kill people for people so that I'm taking that on myself as, as something I'm doing. So I strongly suspect when the time comes that I'll be like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's time to die. Bertrand, sorry. That doesn't sound like role-playing like yourself. No, this is, I'm actually, this is the first time I have successfully managed to not bound myself up with the character. And instead, I'm I'm not channeling myself at all. And uh, I, I'm playing a rogue with the roguish attitude. So I'm always choosing the, the snarky response and always the, yeah, you're going to die response. <laughs> okay. So when I do the confrontation with Bartrand the first time, I have to back up and talk about my first playthrough. So Dragon Age 2 was actually the first game I ever played in this series. I didn't get caught up in the hype with Origins. I kind of missed that. And so I played 2 and then I backtracked to play Origins later. And when I played Dragon Age 2, I started out trying to do what you said, where I was trying to spare everybody. And there's kind of a pattern I noticed in Dragon Age 2, which is that consistently, if you spare people, they show up later in the game, more powerful, trying to kill you again. (laughs) Like this happens over and over in this game. So by the time I confronted Bartrand, I had adopted the kill everyone policy to make the game easier. (laughs) Like if I kill you now, I won't have to face you in several hours later when you're stronger and now allied with somebody else. There's a certain forward thinking going on there. Yeah, it it definitely was a strategic thinking. I also did not have Anders with me the first time, which does make a difference, right? Because I didn't have anyone doing the kind of justice, spirit, healing thing that happens. So I did kill Bartrand. I didn't see it as a mercy kill, though I understand why you might kill him out of mercy. And we should talk about that um, a little bit later. Instead, I killed him purely strategically because I feared that if I didn't kill him, I would be dealing with him later. However, though that was my first playthrough, that is not my headcanon. Normally, when I play this game now, I let Bartrand live. 
regardless of whether I have Anders with me. I've played it both where Anders is with me and Anders does the healing thing and I let Bartrand live. And I've played it where Anders doesn't do the healing thing and I convince Varric to let Bartrand live, which I actually kind of hate doing because I love Varric so much. And if you don't have Anders with you, Varric is very upset at the idea that you want to spare Bartrand and you lose friendship points. And I'm like, no, Varric's my buddy. But I still do that. So that's, that's my usual. I just... I don't feel as comfortable with killing Bartrand now as I did the first time when I was kind of more caught up in just thinking about the strategy of the game. If I think about it as a genuine moral dilemma, I'm less comfortable with the killing. Although we will note that the same as with the question of saving Amaranthine versus saving the Vigil, whether you kill Bartrand or not has almost zero implications in game universe. Right. So if you save him, Varric says he's going to get a healer to come get Bartrand, which I find kind of funny. Like you leave yeah. Bartrand in this house full of all the corpses that you have created and you're like, we'll get a healer to come pick you up. <laughs> but I understand like that's just game mechanics. That's not a big deal, even though it's kind of a funny image. And then Varric makes a comment later in the game that he wants to find a piece of red lyrium to study in order to help Bartrand, right? And if you if you kill Bartrand, Varric says he's going to find a piece of red lyrium to study in order to find out what happened to Bartrand. But otherwise, you never see Bartrand again. He doesn't really come up again. So as far as we know, it's a fairly minor moral choice in terms of the consequences it has on overall gameplay and game experience. Okay, so our last mini moral dilemma is Iron Bull's loyalty quest. And this happens in Dragon Age Inquisition. And you are presented with a situation where you can either sacrifice the Chargers, Bull's team, or you can sacrifice the Dreadnought of Kunari that is coming to cement this kind of allyship between the Inquisition and the Kunari in fighting Corypheus. So, Kira, what did you do normally? Or what did you do the first time? And what do you consider your headcanon? They're both the same. I've never sacrificed them. You'll never get me to sacrifice them. I could never sacrifice them. It's just never. And by them, you mean the Chargers? I could never. Yeah, the Chargers, they live. They they cannot die. I will protect them with every breath in my body. They are such great characters. They're such great characters. And I admit, I just have a an absolute love of Krem. Mm-hmm. And the thought of Krem not existing yeah. is just unfathomable to me in that universe. And part of it too, though, is I really despise the Kun. Okay. I really, really despise them. And so even though I know that there's this sort of look, there are fewer chargers and there's like a hundred souls on the, on the boat. Yeah. It's like a giant warship. There's tons of people yeah. on it. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Sorry. No, no. But you don't know those people. I don't know those people. I don't care about those people. In fact, I slightly suspect I despise those people based on their their philosophy. So there was really never a question for me. That's cold. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What have I done? Most of the time I saved the Chargers. In my very first playthrough, I definitely saved the Chargers. I usually save the Chargers. I like the Chargers. I like Bull. I know the Chargers. I don't know the people in the Dreadnought. I won't say it's as easy a decision for me as it seems to be for you. <laughs> because I do care that there are so many people on the Dreadnought. And I actually kind of like Gat, who we only meet briefly, but he seems like an interesting character. And he definitely 
has a connection to the people on the dreadnought. He has a connection to the Kuhn. He found the Kuhn gave him a sense of purpose. I may not agree with this as, as a sense of purpose for your life, but I respect what it's done for Gat and I like Gat. And so I always feel a little bit conflicted, but I normally save the Chargers. I have sacrificed the Chargers before. You monster. <laughs> fair, fair take. <laughs> So I have sacrificed the Chargers and played that through to the end of Trespasser and seen what happens. So we'll talk briefly about the consequences of this decision. If you save the Chargers, the consequences, as far as I can tell, are, first of all, the Chargers are alive. Yay! Yay. So you can still interact with them. You can still talk to Krem in the pub. And the second consequence that I remember being fairly salient is that the Kunari send assassins after Bull, which... Iron Bull deals with fairly easily Yes, <laughs> on the ramparts of, of Skyhold, just kind of tossing them off. And, and so two, two more people die if you sacrifice the Dreadnought. They make their own choices. <laughs> so that's, that's the in-game consequence that I remember if you sacrifice the Dreadnought. If you sacrifice the Chargers, the consequences, I wouldn't say are bigger, but they kind of, they hurt more. Well, it's like a gut punch. So, of course, there's an empty chair in, in the Herald's Rest in the pub, and you can't interact with Krem, you don't see the Chargers anymore. Bull, his personality changes a little bit slightly, not a ton, he's a very good actor, so he continue. you can even continue to have a relationship with him after sacrificing the Chargers. However, when you hit Trespasser, <laughs> oh boy, when you hit Trespasser and you have kitted Bull out with all kinds of amazing equipment and abilities and made him extremely strong and then super regret that <laughs> when he shows up, even though you left him home and did not bring him in your party and he shows up and he, he super tries to murder you and it really hurts. See, th th there's just no good things that come out of that decision. <laughs> Nothing good. <laughs> no, because it was... It's heartbreaking. Having the the alliance with the Canari doesn't really change anything in the long run. It doesn't seem to, no. So it, if, it, it didn't feel like that was, was meaningful. in Yeah. And I do want to talk about that in terms of the decisions that the game presents you with and the consequences yes. that come from those decisions. So... Let's move to our next segment, which is to introduce some philosophical theories to help us think through these little mini moral dilemmas. So I'm calling this segment the gadfly and the dragon. And if you know anything about philosophy, you might know the significance of that. And if not, Google is your friend. So Kira, can you talk a little bit about the nature of moral dilemmas in general, not specifically to this game, but how we philosophically think about moral dilemmas? So the thing about a moral dilemma is that you're faced with a decision where it's not abundantly clear what the right answer is, that it's difficult or almost impossible to figure out a clearly right answer. And that's what makes it a dilemma, so that you can have different answers, which vary in terms of how the better or worseness of the decision. And one of the things about moral dilemmas that strikes me in many of the cases is that quite often the choices are just 
terrible choices. So you don't actually have the good choice because if you had the good choice, it wouldn't be a dilemma, right? So you basically have to figure out amongst these crappy choices, what is the one that you're going to choose? Which one's the least crappy? Yeah, what one's the least crappy? And I think the the way that I tend to think about these is, this is a, a Star Trek reference now, it's, it's kind of like the Kobayashi Maru situation where I want to save everyone, but I can't. And unlike the Star Trek scenario where Kirk just beats the system. He hacks it, doesn't he? He hacks it, yes. He hacks the computer and changes the scenario. But I can't, I don't have the computer wherewithal to actually do modding in games and things. So I can't hack the game. The choices are constrained and often very stark. If we think about moral dilemmas in real life, you you really can't hack the system. And you really can't hack in real life. Like I'm now forced to make a decision about what I have to do. And all of the decisions are terrible. So I need to figure out how is it that I can navigate this landscape and make a decision when there doesn't seem to be a good one. I, th- I think what makes it in particular a moral dilemma is that we can still filter these decisions through a moral lens and ask, well, what is morally relevant? What should we be paying attention to? So that when we make a choice, we can at least be held accountable for it. That we're not make we're not just flipping a coin. Right. Right. That it's not just a matter of chance that we are recognizing we are making a deliberate choice and that it is motivated by moral considerations. It's not just a well, this is what I'm going to do because I flipped a coin. Right. So what we want to try and do is make sure that we've made a concerted effort to think about what the least crappy options might be and why we're choosing to do what we're choosing to do to identify what's at risk, right? What what do we think is, is going to happen? How will this affect us? How will it affect people around us? How will it affect the kind of message we're sending out into the world about what it means to be a morally responsible person if we do this action as opposed to that action. And of course, philosophers have a bunch of intuition pumps to try and help us with this. And the one that is often the most famous is like the trolley problem. If you if you believe the trolley problem correctly and don't like hack the system to try and change the trolley problem, there's no ideal solution here. Somebody Somebody is going to get killed. And what I find interesting about the trolley problem as an exercise is that people always do want to hack the system. Yeah. Right. That they always want to try to figure a way out of it. And the trolley problem isn't meant to be a solvable problem. Rather, it's meant to be something that taps into our intuitions about what is morally permissible and what isn't in in general. It's not actually about killing people. Right. The trolley problem isn't actually about the trolley. <laughs> it's not. It's really about whether or not we should allow the consequences to be the driving force behind our actions. So for listeners who may not know, the trolley problem is that you're at a switch on train tracks. So you could redirect the train one direction or another. And on one side of the train tracks are, I think it's five people tied to the tracks. And there are various reasons given or not given for why they're tied to the tracks. And on the other side, there's like 
one person walking down the tracks and they think they're perfectly safe because the trolley is supposed to be heading towards the five people. And the question is, do you flip the switch or not? Now, no matter what you do, it's, it's a bad outcome. Someone's going to die. Someone's going to die or, you know, at least be very badly hurt. So the question is, do you flip the switch or not? And different moral theories guide our reasoning in different ways. The trolley problem is a really great exercise to illustrate that moral dilemmas are dilemmas because there's really no clear, awesome solution. (laughs) Okay, so should we talk a little bit about different approaches to moral dilemmas? Sure. So the two that I thought we could apply today, and maybe we'll apply more than two, but the two I thought that clearly apply to the three moral dilemmas we've identified in our Dragon Age games. The two theories that I, I wanted to look at was consequentialist theories and then deontological theories. So when we think about these theories, philosophers often break them into these two categories, consequentialist being, as it sounds, concerned with the consequences. So we judge whether or not our decision is the least crappy decision by looking at what the consequences are of our decisions. And deontological rather than looking at the consequences, focuses on the intention. Why are we doing what we're doing? So a consequentialist, for example, might say, you flip the switch on the trolley because then you're only going to kill one person instead of killing five. Whereas a deontologist might say, well, wait, are you flipping the switch because like you hate that one person on the track and you wanted to murder them? Because that's a problem. (laughs) Ethical theories are useful for pointing out things that are relevant in our moral landscape. I'm going to just back up here and say, as a caveat, I think all the ethical theories are terrible. They all have flaws. (laughs) They all have flaws, which philosophers are really great at pointing out. But, and I think this is important, is that they really are useful for singling out the things about our moral experience that are salient. So consequentialists are right that the consequences do matter, that we do want the world to be a better place. Right. Which is why consequentialism, I think, is it does play such a big role when we are confronted with moral dilemmas that a lot of people's intuitions in moral dilemmas are what is the least bad consequence? Right. How do I minimize the pain or the suffering or the harm? Exactly. How do I minimize the pain or the suffering? How do I make the world better or at least not as terrible as a result of my choices? Whereas with deontological theory, what you get is a recognition that sometimes regardless of the consequences, (laughs) there are things that become morally relevant that have absolutely nothing to do with how things play out in the world. So for example, our notions of moral responsibility, Mm -hmm. that um, sometimes we accidentally do things that are terrible. And I think from a deontological perspective, we get an understanding of why we shouldn't be held morally responsible for accidents because we didn't intend to do it. And what I like about deontological perspectives is that it recognizes that there might be things that are wrong to do no matter what, Yeah. (laughs) that regardless of what the consequences are, there are certain things that we're going to want to say are still wrong. So no matter what, I think that the deontological perspective recognizes that we may have duties to do things that may be hard to do because of the consequences, but we still have an obligation to uphold certain things. I also think deontological theory may be really helpful when we're thinking about the game in particular, because we've already kind of addressed this idea of having duties, right? If you're the Arl of Amaranthine, you have duties to these people. That title comes with a moral responsibility regardless of the consequences, which in-game are 
very minimal. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, I do like that both, both the consequentialist approaches and deontological approaches pick out aspects of our moral experience, which are relevant in our decision-making and not just our decision-making, but also our evaluation of other people. And I, I think that becomes relevant. Like when we're looking at Bertrand, for example, mm-hmm. that if, if, if he isn't responsible, does he deserve to die? I think that's really important. And again, Bartrand, there's not a huge number of consequences in game. <laughs> cool. Are there any other theoretical frameworks we would like to establish in place before we move on to applying these theories to our mini moral dilemmas? I would like to introduce the ethics of care. Yes, do it. <laughs> because all three of these decisions for me highlight the nature of the relationships that we're in. And so the ethics of care is a reactionary theory to more traditional philosophical theory in ethics, where rather than taking on abstract principles, which are applicable through reason, which is then seen as a very masculine approach to thinking about ethics, the ethics of care comes out of the experience of people, particularly women, who were looking at ethical theory and saying, this picture of what we're doing when we're doing ethics doesn't fit with my lived experience of ethics, where if ethical theory requires me to be impartial, for example, and consider all people equally, well, that doesn't mesh with my experience, say, as a mother, Mm -hmm. where if I treat my children impartially alongside other children, that's actually a failure in some way of my caring relationships that I'm in, that I should be partial to my kids. I should be partial to the people that I'm in relationship to. So the ethic of care says we actually have to be cognizant of the fact that we are in these webs of relationships that may create responsibilities. So the the notion of the care ethic also shifts from talking about duties to responsibilities mm-hmm. and sort of frames those a little bit differently where duties and rights generally are seen as going together, where if someone has a duty, there's a right on the part of someone else to claim that. Whereas responsibilities are not framed in the same way that when I care for people, it's not because they necessarily have a right to my care, that that might be not the way we want to frame it. So I think the ethic of care asks that we look to how we can repair and maintain the relationships that we're in, in ways that meet the needs and interests of the people around us. And I, I think that's a useful way to think about our moral experience. Do you think it's also fair to say the ethics of care adds in a component that's missing in consequentialism and deontology, which is this idea of an effective response? that we've been talking about how some of these moral dilemmas made us feel and that this effective response actually matters in ethics of care. Whereas, for example, Kant, who is usually held up as our big deontologist, thought that if you were doing something because of an effective response, because you cared for somebody or you felt joy in seeing them happy, that actually reduced the moral value of your action. So the ethic of care is, is really quite a broad category, but I think generally, yes, that there is a recognition that our affective responses highlight morally relevant details. So again, it's going back to what in our moral landscape now becomes salient. And I think 
it's not that the affective response tells us what the right thing to do is, but what it does is highlight something is going on there that's important that we need to look at. Right. So another way of kind of orienting ourselves towards the dilemma. Exactly. Because I think if we simply go on emotional reaction, that could that could be dangerous as well. For sure. Some of our affective responses are the result of certain socialization processes that could be problematized. Right. But there's been a shift in more recent contemporary ethical theory, which recognizes that we just can't ignore these sorts of emotional responses altogether. Great. So we have three kind of frameworks here. If we look at consequentialist theory, the way we would judge the morality of our actions is to kind of look at how much harm we're doing versus how much joy or pleasure we're causing. And if the action causes less harm and more joy, woo, we pick the moral action. Um, if we look at the ontological theory, what we're going to try and do is make sure that our intention is to respect the rational autonomy of other people um, and of all rational agents. So anything that's capable of reasoning and making their own free decisions, we need to respect that. And if we're not respecting that, then our intention is immoral. And then we have care ethics as our third framework, where what we're going to do is really examine the relationships we have with other people, the kind of responsibilities that those relationships create for us as moral agents, and pay attention to our effective responses to other people, not as determinants of what we're going to do, but as guides for what we're going to do. So those are kind of our three theories. Sound good? Excellent. All right, let's move on to our third section. So I'm calling this section the game as frame. So what we're going to do here is think about the kind of moral dilemmas that the game presented us with and think about what our moral theories might open up in terms of what we can think about with regards to these dilemmas. So one thing I want to point out right away is that when we look at these games, the nature of the moral dilemmas that we're presented with in each of these scenarios, the dilemma is presented as an either or situation. So all the gray area has been stripped away. And that isn't typically how moral dilemmas exist, quote unquote, in the real world. Often, as uh, Kira said, there are better and worse options, but usually there's more than just two options. And you're kind of deciding among a variety of variables. So already the dilemma has been simplified. And that's not necessarily a problem for allowing us to practice moral theory and to practice moral reasoning, but it is something to be aware of that this is artificial, which is not that surprising because it's a game. They can only do so many scenarios. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The programmers can only program in so many. The voice actors can only do so many different lines. But it's it's just important to be aware of the limitations of what we're practicing here as we practice moral reasoning in conjunction with these games. Okay, so if we think about saving amaranthine the city versus burning the city to the ground and saving vigil's keep what do you think a consequentialist theorist might tell us to do and what kind of things might be drawn to our attention i think the interesting thing about this particular approach is that it's something that can be done when you go to google and research the game outcomes mm -hmm. right so if i was playing it as a sort of 
consequentialist, I could actually go and say, okay, so what are the actual consequences and which consequences do I want to achieve? Right. So I just have to look at the possible outcomes and say, okay, this one is clearly better. And that's the, the correct choice. But one of the things that was interesting on my second playthrough and my second playthrough was far enough along that I couldn't remember a lot of the stuff from the first playthrough is I didn't remember what the consequences were. And I was playing it without spoilers. No Googling online. You, I wasn't Googling online. And so you don't know what the consequences are. And that was something that really made it so that a consequentialist approach was difficult to establish. So on the one hand, burning the city down, we don't actually get a sense of how big the city is. So how many people have just been right? killed? Essentially? How many people are in there? I really did take burn the city down as we're torching the whole thing, everyone's going to die. Turns out in the epilogue, that's not the case. <laughs> um, that not everybody dies. The city is destroyed, but they rebuild it. So in terms of the consequentialist approach here, the other problem too is that it's not just a simple choice between save the city or save the vigil in terms of how things play out. Because it also involves well, did I spread my soldiers too thin, mm -hmm. right? That there's there's actually a lot going into how things play out. Like, am I an elf? Because if I'm an elf and I let the city burn, that creates tension. Not just for you, but for <laughs> all elves. For, for all elves, right? And so those are, again, things that play into, well, what are the consequences really? It's really hard to tell. So rather than worrying about that, I think what what I really did is I went again to the strategic choice of if I was actually in this situation, what could I predict would happen if I decided to go back to the vigil, not necessarily within the game, but within an actual scenario where I had to travel. Right. right. <laughs> and so I was playing more into the how I think it would actually play out in a, dare I say, real world scenario. And from a consequentialist position, it really seems like you save the city. You can do the most good by staying where you are and fighting, fighting rather than kind of leaving the city and traveling back to the vigil, risking arriving at the vigil too late. Yep. If we ignore like fast travel and stuff like that, we're playing as though this is the real world. Exactly. You're here now. The problem is here now. You can do more by addressing the problem right in front of you. Yeah. And so I really play that decision consequentially mm -hmm. in terms of you're saving a whole city. Vigil's Keep is a smaller place with fewer people. And again, it also depends on whether you've shored up the vigil. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So one thing I think is really interesting about this is that while the game presents you with an either or dilemma, what we're noticing is that the consequences of choices you made earlier affect the outcome of the choice in front of you now, right? So yes. it is still an either or, save the city or save the vigil, but much like real life, <laughs> Um, the context matters. Is the vigil able to defend itself? Or did you, like I probably would have if I had actually finished this, kind of skip a bunch of quests and not actually, you know, repair the wall and stuff like that. And what's interesting, too, is that like as a completionist, like I did all of those things. But when faced with the choice, you're not told what the impact's going to be. Yeah. So you still kind of have to guess. 
And I guessed on the side of, well, I did all those improvements. I'm going to, like, I, I upgraded all of the soldiers' armor and, you know, like, I did all that stuff. So I really did just be like, well, I guess, I guess that'll pay off in the long run. I hope. But again, in a real world example, you never know mm -hmm. what the consequences are going to be. And if you stay away from Google, you also never know. Exactly. That it just so happened that it seemed to work out the way that I thought I got a pretty good ending overall. I think a consequentialist would say showing up the vigil and saving the city is a pretty optimal ending. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the end, vigil gets rebuilt. It's, you know, you're, 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 you've got a lot of acclaim at the end of it in terms of being successful. So I, I don't think it's the worst option for sure. <laughs> No, I'm sure there are worse. So it seems like consequentialist framing works really well for this moral dilemma. Do we want to say anything about a deontological framing or a care approach? In terms of the deontological perspective, what kind of also informed my decision, I actually felt like I really made the right decision. This didn't seem so much as a moral dilemma to me as much as other ones did. Mm -hmm. Because even, and again, we mentioned this before, that I have that duty, yeah. that role responsibility as the, the, the ruler of this fiefdom, that I have a responsibility to the people who are the farmers and the people in the city. And those are the people that I have to protect. And that feels like something that was also playing a role there. And throughout the playing of the game, I, I helped the city guards against the smugglers. Like it seemed like I had a duty to help them defend the city as well as part of that. But the other aspect of deontological reasoning that often plays in for me is the idea of not treating people as a means to an end. It's not okay to only treat people just for what you can get from them. The ends don't justify the means. Yeah, the ends doesn't justify the means. And burning the city seemed to be doing that. Saying, okay, we got rid of the darkspawn horde yeah. and a bunch of people died, but the ends are supposed to justify the means. And deontology would say, uh-uh. Grey Wardens, I think, are very consequentialist as sort of a overall group. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the things for me about my playthrough, in particular the second one, where I was actually more, I think, entrenched in the story and the and the character that I, I had created in my head, that it wasn't me. So I'm getting better at distancing <laughs> myself. By the end of this, you will be a role player. Right. So my character was a Dalish elf. And the backstory there is you basically get infected by Darkspawn and really don't choose to, I mean, does anyone really choose to become a Grey Warden? It seems like no. <laughs> it seems like no, but yet also I was like, well, I'm, I might be forced to be a Grey Warden, but that doesn't mean I have to buy into this defeat the blight at all costs mentality. So I'm going to maintain some sort of uh, distance from that attitude. And that, that was something that I consistently did throughout and it really felt like if you were playing as a gray warden who really bought into gray warden stuff you would want to save the vigil right because that's sort of the gray warden base and they do tend to operate on an ends justify the means very much so mentality a very a very hard consequentialist mentality which might explain the kind of ambivalent reputation they have across status yeah and, and why I often don't get good Grey Warden endings, <laughs> because I tend to resist purely consequentialist 
thinking. And so I, I generally make decisions that I don't think a very committed Grey Warden would probably make. Okay, so let's talk about Bartrand. Here, we've already highlighted that if we're thinking about it in a consequentialist way, there really aren't any large-scale consequences that happen. There are small-scale ones for both Varric and Bartrand, right? So I have heard it discussed among some of my friends and understand this idea that some people might say that killing Bartrand is consequentially an act of mercy, that to let him live when he has been corrupted by the Red Lyrium idol causes more suffering than just putting him out of his misery. So a lot of people call the decision to kill Bartrand a kind of mercy kill, which is interesting. And and narratively, it's an interesting flip because you go into this quest kind of like revenge fantasy, right? Like I'm going to go and and kill Bartrand because he locked me in a tag and I thought I was going to die down there. And then at the end, the killing is framed as an act of mercy rather than an act of revenge. So we can think about that deontologically, the intention behind killing Bartrand a little bit later. But consequentially, what that means is that people will often say letting Bartrand live is leading to more suffering. So I think there is a consequentialist argument to be made that you should kill Bartrand, even though I, I don't kill Bartrand and I don't think you should. I think that the consequentialist framing might lead us to think that this is a, a less crappy outcome. <laughs> yes. I think initially I thought of it as, as a mercy killing when thinking about what will happen to Bartrand, because it was really clear when Anders did his sort of healing that it was only going to be temporary. Mm-hmm. He would return back to the state that he had been in. And if Anders does the healings, Bartrand actually expresses remorse for what has happened, seems bewildered at what he has done. He's confused. And he begs Varric to make it stop. Make it stop. And it's not clear exactly what he's asking for, but he does say that two or three times. And so that lends towards the mercy killing idea that if we allow him to continue living in that state, it's one, not sort of jumping ahead to the deontological event, not respecting his desires, yeah. possibly if we interpret it that way. But I, I admit anything that requires someone to be under the loving care of the Chantry kind of makes me dubious about how well that's going to go in the long run. It never strikes me that the world of Dragon Age is one where mental health issues are going to be dealt with in respectful and kind ways. Yes, there doesn't seem to be any kind of, of- appropriate yeah structure in place and then you have Varric, who also i think legitimately does want some sort of reckoning for what happened to all of the people in there in the house and the suffering that they went through and that some sort of justice demand seems to be that someone's got to pay and the thing is with a consequentialist approach that becomes relevant (laughs) the satisfaction of his desires does factor in and so the satisfaction he would get from that action actually becomes relevant this kind of sense of closure and completion yeah yeah and the other thing that becomes relevant in a consequentialist frame is that Bartrand has proven himself to be a danger not only to himself, but to others. So many others. He has not only <laughs> locked us in the tag, but he also then tortures his servants, feeds Lyrium to his guards, I think. And so every, everyone in his, in his manor house has been affected. He is harming himself and he is harming others. And putting a decisive end to that harm 
under a consequentialist framework seems like a morally good thing to do. Now, what's interesting too is when I watch the scene, and this is also an interesting point, is how you could make a decision to say end his life, or in, and this goes for other decisions as well, but then the way the dialogue plays out might not be exactly how you thought it would play out. Yeah. So, And that's what I found interesting with Hawk's dialogue justifying it, was we can't be sure that he's not going to be a threat because he's could have a demon in him no one will be safe as long as he's alive. And so that's, and that is explicitly a, yeah. a consequentialist based reasoning where it's, if we hand him over to the healers, <laughs> yeah. this could just, he could end up what corrupting the healers, I suppose. Cause healers are mages and yeah. 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 So I found interesting though, that when I initially was thinking, Oh, I'll choose to kill him. I love how you said that so happily <laughs> concern for his, you know, suffering that he would engage in. And and then when I saw how it played out, I'm like, but that's not why I would do it. <laughs> that's not I wasn't even thinking about the demon possibility. No, no, that's not the consequentialist reasoning I want. <laughs> right. So right. if you choose to kill him, the game as frame is framing this as a consequentialist reasoning, regardless of why you might have decided to do it. But also a very specific type of consequentialist reasoning. Right. Right. So whereas I would be motivated by releasing Bartrand from suffering, mm -hmm. that's a very different, we got to kill him to make sure there's no potential threat. So the releasing him from suffering, that's motivated by a sort of beneficence where I want to make things better for him. As opposed to the kill him because he's a threat, that is treating someone as a means to an end. Yeah. Right. Where I, I don't, I'm not caring about Bertrand there. Yeah. I'm, I'm caring about everybody else. The killing becomes not an act of compassion, but more of an act of necessity. Yeah. It's, it's that moral calculus. Yeah. Really. And I, I think that really highlights how within consequentialism, you can have very different approaches. Yeah. That, and different forms of reasoning, which get you to the same point. But what motivates you? Which consequences become salient to you? Exactly. What is actually driving the action? And I think in this case, wanting to relieve Bertrand's suffering is probably a better consequentialist justification than he could be a threat. The, the other thing too is I don't think he's responsible. So the idea is that the idol that they find in the deep roads is corrupting him. And so Hawk picks up the idol, and I think he might give it to Varric, yes. who then tosses it to Bartrand. And there's no indication that Bartrand is going to betray them until he catches the idol, and then there's some sort of wonky lighting thing. Like, there's this red light that happens, and after that, it's clear he's made a choice. And so one could argue... yes that at that point, he comes under the influence of the Red Lyrium, that it was the idol all along. That it was the idol all along, and that Bartrand exactly. may not be making an autonomous decision even there, which moves us into thinking about this from a deontological framework. So as you're saying here, we can acknowledge that Bartrand is not acting autonomously. He's not acting with free will at the point when he touches the idol or perhaps a little bit later. It's not entirely <laughs> clear when the idol takes effect because we're not sure whether Bartrand was always kind of, you know, a shady, miserable dude or whether 
the idol immediately starts taking effect the moment he touches it. But in any case, by the time we arrive at the reckoning at Bartran's mansion, the idol has been pulling the strings for a long time. And Bartran is not acting freely. He's not making decisions that he would choose to make were it not for the influence. And influence probably isn't even a strong enough word. The compulsion of the idol, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. And that changes the way we think about Bartrand as a moral actor. Yeah, no, I think there are a couple of things in terms of Bartrand's rationality being absent when he's under the influence of the idol. And I think that feeds into that analysis of moral responsibility and whether we can hold him accountable. Yeah. Because initially when Varric is there, he's blaming Bartrand that there is this sense of anger and blame. But if Bartrand's not rational, if he's being influenced by the idol in a way that's beyond his control, then the blame is not deserving. And I think he can't be, which means it would be wrong to punish him. He can't be held responsible for these actions. Does that also mean Varric's sense of pleasure at at punishing Bartrand would also, in some sense, be wrong? Yeah, and this is why, <laughs> from a deontological perspective, our emotional responses to these things are probably not relevant. Right. We should be acting from cool reason. Exactly. But I think... <laughs> Well, from a deontological point of view, once Varric realizes that his brother has been under the influence, the anger, the moral anger is inappropriate. And to Varric's credit, it does melt away. Yes. Once he realizes that Vartrand is not responsible, has no idea of what he's done, Varric shifts very quickly from being angry to being kind of weary, upset. Yeah, it, he, he is no longer filled with this kind of righteous anger. He's no longer yeah. interested in punishing Bartrand or achieving justice by killing Bartrand or any of that kind of stuff anymore. Yeah, when he does kill Bartrand, it's more resigned yeah. than victorious or having having sort of wreaked vengeance, so to speak. It's, it's a very much more resigned, the writing's on the wall, this has to happen, but it's more regretful. Yeah, you're not doing it because Bartrand was wrong and needs to be punished, but perhaps for a more consequentialist reason. Yeah. So deontology tells us we can't really blame Bartrand for this. We can't hold Bartrand responsible for this. Um, and to blame him and hold, hold him responsible would be morally wrong. Yes. And of course, this is where I would see a natural move to the ethic of care. Oh, you beat me to it. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah. <Good way. laughs> and I think the reason that it's a good segue is because the ethic of care really recognizes how we are in relations of dependency, that we're not always going to be moral agents in our lives. So we start off as children lacking moral agency. We get older. And as we age, we could experience elements of our lives in which we lack that moral autonomy, like if we have dementia or mm -hmm. Alzheimer's or ways in which we're, we're not able to act with autonomy. Right. Moral agency becomes a little bit more fluid. It, it's much more fluid. And it's, it's recognizing that contrary to what Thomas Hobbes thought, we don't just spring into the world as fully formed individuals ready to take on the world. It's having nasty, brutish and short exactly lives. Exactly. That 
actually we have to be cared for and grow up into people and that process is going to involve a lot of time when we're not actually moral agents and i think this is a way to say that the relationships that are present here in this choice actually do matter yeah so it matters that varak is bartran's brother yeah and the decision does come down to you. You get to decide whether Bartran should live or not, which is a little bit odd when Varric is Very Bartran's weird. brother. But it's, again, a nature of the game. Exactly. But also, if we wanted to roleplay this, you know, you are the de facto leader of this posse. I think by the time you encounter Bartrand, your posse has been together for several years. And it matters that Varric trusts you to guide his decision-making, and you need to take Varg's interests and, by extension, Bartran's interests into account in trying to guide this decision. Yes, and ultimately, that question of, are there ways in which we can try to maintain and repair the relationships that we're in? Yeah. From that perspective, killing Bartrand is going to do little Mm -hmm. that it destroys the relationship. It's clear that Varric does care about him, I think. Yeah. There is that sense in which he wants a relationship with Bartrand, I think. And I think Bartrand wants a relationship with Varric. I mean, it might be a very complicated one, but to simply destroy that relationship at its core and to have Varric do it. Like, this is one of those instances where I really wanted that option of, I'll take care of this Varric. Yeah, Varric, you leave. This is one of those times where I really wish that there was this option because there often is an option particularly within Dragon Age 2 I can remember a number of cases where it's sort of like I'll take care of it for you and I think that one thing Bioware does really well is make us actually care for these fictional characters so bringing ethics of care in seems quite natural because a lot of the game is framed to encourage you to care about the people that you're with and to care about what happens to them and the decisions that they're forced to make. And I think it is because of an effective response of care that I usually agree to have Bartrand live. And in some degree, this puts a bit more burden on Varric. I mean, we don't see it, but he says, oh, I'm going to have to find a way to deal with my brother now and I'll get healers and I'll organize all of this. But it also is supporting Varric in maintaining this relationship with Bartrand and in strengthening his identity as Bartrand's brother and all that that kind of stuff. And we don't know. Maybe the healers will be able to help Bartrand walk back from this lyrium corruption partway, perhaps. Maybe when you destroy the idol at the end, it makes a difference. I don't know. We don't know. Yeah, and we don't. to be frank, the consequences are not usually what motivates me. What motivates me is the relationship. Yes, I think that's often the case. So should we talk about our last mini moral dilemma? Yes. Bull and the Chargers. Well, I've already pretty much explained how I feel about this one. <laughs> but not from an ethical perspective, I guess. If I think about it consequentialistly, like the first time I encountered this and I let the chargers live the first time and I felt as I was doing it, I felt it was the wrong choice, even though I did it. And consequentially, I think I can explain that feeling by thinking about, okay, strategically we're being offered. Now I know nothing actually pans out in the game later on, but strategically we're being offered an alliance with the Canari to help battle Corypheus, right? We're going to get more intel. We're going to make this alliance a little more formal than just having like Bull as our spy kind of working both sides here. 
And so there's this issue that the alliance could help the Inquisition quite a bit. We've already seen that the Kunari are fairly formidable and skilled warriors, and they have a lot of intel, and they're motivated to go up against the Venatori, yes. right? They, they are not fans of Tevinter. So the alliance seems very strategically smart. And also, we know there are hundreds of souls on the Dreadnought. So if I think about this strictly in terms of the numbers and of trying to win the future battle in our favor so that we don't have like this Tevinter Darkspawn overlord that is Corypheus ruling from the Black City, then I think that what I should do is sacrifice the Chargers in order to save the Dreadnought. And yet I did not do it. <laughs> it's the trolley problem. It is. It is the trolley problem. Bull's quest is the trolley problem. Do I sacrifice the few for the greater good? So are we in agreement that a consequentialist would likely, at least in an initial playthrough, if you don't know anything about what the actual consequences are, it would say you should sacrifice the charges. Oh, it absolutely would. Right. So even if we don't think about how the alliance might pan out in terms of the oncoming war. Yep. Just the number of people at play in this initial yeah. decision, that there are hundreds on the Dreadnought and there are, what, like a dozen Chargers. There's the people we know and then maybe a few others. Yeah. We should definitely sacrifice the Chargers. Yeah. And then even if you do know the consequences, like if we, if we pretended it had actual consequences, because I think that's part of the issue here is that the consequences never played out. If you lose the... Uh, alliance with the Canari, then there should have been consequences in terms of things happening. But not, it never felt, broadly speaking, about the fight against Corythius that this was going to be meaningful. Yeah. But if we thought that it would... And there's a good reason to think that it would. In a, in a sort of, a, again, real world sort of scenario. Yeah. Then I think any good consequentialist is going to say, uh, there's no choice. You definitely sacrifice the Chargers. Okay. So can you explain to me why I didn't do it, even though I should, thought I should have? Because consequentialism is not the only thing that matters. <laughs> and I think this is, and I've spoken about this already, but it is that when it comes to being impartial because this is something that consequentialism requires of us a utilitarian approach to consequentialism is going to really say you have to be impartial no person counts more than another in terms of their interests and you can't allow your feelings for particular people to sway your decision so it doesn't matter that i know krem and dalish and all the other characters and I don't know anyone on the Dreadnought. Because the consequentialist is going to say, look, if you have a choice between saving five strangest children and one of your own children, you should save the five strangest children. Mm -hmm. And this is that exact same sort of scenario where you're being asked to be impartial and from an impartial, rational perspective based on this sort of moral calculus there's no question which would seem to bring about the greatest consequences. And I use seem there because, again, we're basing it on best predicted outcomes. But I think that clearly is not going to be sufficient in terms of how we are approaching the moral landscape, that our embeddedness in relationships with others can't just be discarded. So there's this idea that ought implies can, where if we have a moral judgment that I ought to do something, 
it implies I can actually do it. So if someone were to say you have a moral obligation to jump off the roof and fly <laughs> unaided, I would be like, well, that's impossible. I can't possibly have a moral obligation to do that. And I think one of the things the ethics of care kind of picks away at is the idea that we can simply become impartial observers of the world, that I can't separate myself from my caring position as a mother or as a spouse or as a friend, that these sorts of relationships are not something I could just toss away. In this case, Bull is a mentor to the Chargers and a leader, and they trust him. I think Cram even says, like, we knew you had our back if you saved them, yes. right? Like, we weren't worried. It yeah. was going to be fun. Like, of course, you were going to you were gonna help us out. So Bull is in this very caring relationship with the Chargers, and then you and Bull have developed a very complicated relationship involving him being kind of a spy, but also kind of your buddy. And I think that one, one playthrough, I was romancing him. Yeah. Right. So that's also a possibility, right? You could be in a romantic relationship with him. Even if you're not in a re romantic relationship, you are at this stage a friend, right? He asks you along on the loyalty quest because you are a friend. Yeah. And it's a complicated friendship. And there are issues of how much can you trust him? And he's a spy and those kind of things. But he's always been very open about Yes his role in everything and Worst so I ever <laughs> or the most effective it's it's almost like you have to make a very fast judgment here mm -hmm. it's not like you have tons and tons of time to sit down and work out the consequences to balance everything you have to face right now with I have to act and I think that's also something that is not always acknowledged in moral dilemmas yeah i think this is something the game does fairly well i mean you can just leave the conversation wheel there and go have a half hour deliberation if you want yeah. but most people don't you're caught up in the movement of the game <laughs> and this is the way real life works too sometimes quite often you're faced with a moral dilemma and you just don't have time to like reach for your favorite philosophical theory and leaf through the book and think about what you're going to do and sometimes it is a knee-jerk instinctive response mm -hmm. and i and that is not necessarily informed by a very precise, rational argument where you're drawing on this stuff. And I think how we frame our values prior to those decisions actually, I think, can help. Yeah. In terms of making us, and this is kind of bringing in the idea of being predisposed to act in certain ways rather than others. And th that's why I think whether we're consequentialist or deontological in our approach really does frame the decision a lot for me because, I mean, in addition to the ethic of care, because if you sacrifice the chargers, you're really treating them as a means to an end. And because I tend to resist that generally, it really helps in addition to the, the care ethic approach to be like, yeah, no, there's no way I can sacrifice them. So this last thing that you've mentioned might be a good segue into our last section, which I've called a modern girl in thetas, just kind of as a callback to all the fan fiction that's written about like a modern girl getting sucked into the video game. <laughs> I just thought it was a cute title. 
because what you've said, if I can paraphrase, is that practicing thinking through what's important to us, practicing moral deliberations, practicing paying attention to what's salient in terms of the consequences, in terms of our intentions, in terms of our relationships to others and what duties or obligations we have to other people is helpful because then when we get to these kind of snap decisions where we don't have a lot of time, where we have to have a knee-jerk response, we've already kind of laid the groundwork for ourselves in terms of what's important and what kind of decisions we are more likely to make. And what I think is really interesting if we think about that with relation to the game is that games like the Dragon Age series that put us in situations where we have to make moral decisions, where we have to grapple with moral dilemmas, could be seen as a way of practicing this kind of thing and of pointing out what's salient and what's not. And so you role play as a ruthless character and it's fun, but it also highlights for you exactly how this person is different from you, for example. Or in Kira's case, you role play as yourself over and over again, potentially. I know you're breaking away from that. And you kind of practice and cement what's important to you and what kind of decisions you could never make or could only make once in the game and will never do again, <laughs> or make and then immediately have to roll back to the last save in order to undo. Exactly. Playing these different characters and choosing these different scenarios sometimes is really helpful for testing your moral intuitions about things. So that's that's kind of a value of the game and of thinking about philosophical theories, and in this podcast episode, specifically moral theories with relation to the game and what the game brings to the table in terms of allowing us to practice morality, practice moral decision-making, and to try out a bunch of different variations of approaches to moral decision-making with very low stakes or arguably no stakes consequences. (laughs) But as we have also highlighted, there are some limitations, right? So Kira, you've already pointed out that at least when it comes to a consequentialist approach, Google is right there (laughs) and we can find out what the consequences are of pretty much any action we choose in the game. So there are ways in which there are important differences and that's one, right? In the real world, we often don't know what the full consequences of our moral actions are going to be. And that's part of what makes dealing with moral dilemmas so complicated is we don't know what the least crappy option is. (laughs) And the future is not always predictable. So that when we when we make predictions about what can happen, the world gets in our way. Yeah. <laughs> in a way that, you know, a computer program has programmed responses to things, but you can't do that in the real world. We might intend to bring about certain consequences, but those intentions may be for naught when the world just refuses to go the way that we want it to. And obviously these games are great because they do have some branching storylines and things do to some degree depend on the decisions you made earlier. So you point that out with, for example, whether or not the vigil holds (laughs) depends on how completionist you were earlier, but it cannot, it can never really compare to the variability that we see when it comes to real world moral deliberations. So that's just to say that these These games, I think, are really, really cool for the moral dilemmas that they place in front of us. And obviously, we still want to be aware of the limits, that the dilemmas are almost always presented as an either or, that 
there are predictable consequences to these dilemmas in ways that there aren't in the real world. And that people around us react in predictable ways. So not only are the future outcomes predictable, but for example, when you tell Bull to save the chargers, he does it every time. <laughs> he doesn't like change his mind and go, no, that's you're wrong, Inquisitor, whoever, and I need to be a good Kunari soldier. And so ends episode one of Andraste's Gadfly. You can follow us on Twitter at Andraste's Gadfly, and you can drop us a line there to let me know if I should finish Awakenings, and also to let us know if there are any other mini moral dilemmas you'd like us to cover in this podcast, or really anything else that you'd like us to bring a philosophical lens to in the Dragon Age series. We have a few other episodes planned, um, but we're always curious to hear what you'd like us to dive into. Thanks to my colleague Kira. Thanks to anyone who's listening. This has been a blast. I think we'll do it again. Yes. Bye.